Well, last last Sunday I, I talked about my sermon. I, I said it was one narrative with two stories because we had both what Jacob intended and what God intended, kind of weaving back and forth through that that chapter or those chapters. Today I've got one story but two narratives. We're going to look at two different uh, descriptions of, of things happening, but there's actually one story that's going to unify them and be working through both of them. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to start in Genesis 37, and we're going to cover Genesis 38. So this is this is a PG-13 sermon, um, because <laughs> some of the parts of the Bible have, have more interesting activities going on in them than others. So Genesis 37. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the son of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than them, they hated him could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of this dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I am going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they're grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard of this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judas said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. 
After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels, 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son for many days. All all his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in, in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Story one. Story two starts. Narrative two. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of a of Adullam named Hira. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son named Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kizib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn son, was wicked in the Lord's sight, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew the child would not be his, so whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep it from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah, to the men who were shearing sheep, and his friend Hira, the Adulamite, went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw, though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come, now let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent a young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who is beside the road in Enon? There hasn't been a shrine prostitute here, they said to him. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, she hasn't been, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has, or we will become a laughing stock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. About 
three months later, Judah was told, your, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man that owns these, she said, and added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I am, since I wouldn't give her my son Sheba. She did, and he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, so the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, This one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out, and she said, So this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. His brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and he was named Sarah. But they're two very different stories. And you may think, what do they have to do with each other? Well, they're both in the Bible. That's the, that's the easy answer. But they also both tell the story that the Bible tells, which is that despite our unfaithfulness, God is faithful, and God will fulfill his promises what he has spoken will come to pass, and he will even use the mistakes and missteps of humans to bring them about. Now, in the first story, in the first part of this, in Genesis 37, when we get to Joseph, this is kind of interesting, because up till this point, after the flood, we've kind of been dealing with Abraham and his family, the promise that's going to come through him, the promised blessing to him and through him the world. And we've been following the heirs of that promise through their stories. We, had, we didn't cover it, but there's a, a, a little bit of an aside to talk about Lot, and because that speaks to something about God's character. Um, but this is the first time we're going to jump off that line, because when we're talking about Joseph, Joseph isn't going to be the one who that blessing flows through. But he is going to be a guardian of that blessing, and he is going to be used to preserve that blessing. So this is really interesting, because with, with the exception of chapter 38, which we just read, the rest of Genesis is going to be talking about God's provision through Joseph. But again, Joseph isn't the line that the promise of redemption for the world is going to come through. The first line here, when we get to Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan, the NIV lived is a good is a good translation there. Some the NRSV actually says settled, which isn't good, because there is this notion behind this that he's that's where he's existing, but it's not his home. As a matter of fact, some translations will make it more clear that he's in the land where his father was also dwelling as an alien. So there's this sense that he's come back to where the land where his father existed and was promised, but even though he's living there. He's also still a nomad. He's not firmly established here. And then we're going into this account. It says an account of Jacob's family line, but then it just talks about Joseph. So it's really interesting because it's letting you know that everything that happens to Joseph is going to be about preserving the family line of Jacob. And the other thing I love about this is we, we had earlier the story where Jacob wrestled with the angel 
and was renamed Israel because you've struggled with God and man and overcome. We talked about a new name is a new identity. It's really interesting that it's Jacob again in these narratives because it's bringing out that, that kind of fact that you're a deceiver and you brought that into your family and boy, we're just going to be reading a lot of deception and bad behavior in this. And so it's very appropriate that we're going back to referring to him as Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Billah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought a bad report about them. When I was first, uh, when I first heard this story as a young Christian, and, and for virtually all the ways I've, I've heard it presented, it always talked about Joseph being a tattletale on his brothers. And you had them lumped together as his brothers. But it's really interesting because the text specifically singles out which brothers it were. It was, rather. You wouldn't know I studied English. But uh, at the time when Jacob was still living with Laban, he had fallen in love with Laban's daughter, Rachel, and wanted to marry her. And Laban tricked him and gave him his daughter Leah first. And uh, then he, had to, he worked more and he got both of them. So there's already division in this family because you don't just have a husband and wife. You have, you have two families. And the two wives were kind of rivals. And what happened is they were, for, for a long time, Leah, who was the less favored uh, wife, it said God took pity on her because she was less favored. And she gave her children. So she had the children first. But then, when she stopped having kids, Rachel was jealous, and so she gave Joseph her servant as his wife so that he'd have children by her and they could be kind of counted as Rachel's children. And that happened. And then Leah, to get back, gave him her handmaiden as his wife so that he, she could bear children to Jacob, and they would be counted on her side. So they're kind of having this family dynamic, and they're, they're bringing in concubines to try and run up the score of who has more, more children. But the thing is, the, the brothers that are mentioned here are the brothers of those two concubines. And because Rachel and Leah were daughters of Laban, they were also kin, they were also kin to Abraham. So there would have been this sense that you have kind of two tiers in this family, you have the kids that are, you know, fully in the family line. And then we get this little notion that there might be kind of a second class tier there, that there might be some brothers that are, they're worried that they're second class. So it's kind of significant that that's who, who Joseph is telling the, uh, the tale on. And it kind of points to the fact that this family has some, some really, some issues they haven't worked out. You know, I, this, this, you know, soap operas go back a long time. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. This is bad parenting 101. <laughs> now, because I, I married into a family with kids and, and kind of came in, I, I feel less guilty about having favorites, but wouldn't, wouldn't tell any of them they're my favorite. Some of them might figure it 
Um, but their father's not making any secret of this, and he makes this special garment, uh, which people fall all over themselves trying to define, you know, some translations say, you know, a, a robe with, with long sleeves, and uh, some say fancy, some say a robe with many colors, if you remember the musical Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, um, it goes to that, but anyway, it was, it was a garment of distinction, it was, he was, he was styling in his threads, you know, and every time his brothers saw him, they'd be like, they're dad's favorite, he's got the coat. It's not the way to, when you've already got tension in your family, that's not, not the way, uh, not the way to, to soothe it. You know, the New Testament will talk about how God is making one people for himself out of many peoples, bringing them together. The Old Testament is almost always a story of, of humans taking one group of people and making it into many groups of people and not in a good way. And we're going we're gonna to see echoes of this through this whole chapter. Hebrew narrative structures are neat. They're, they're not like most of what we think of when we think of drama and literature. We get, we get that heritage from the Greeks and the Romans, which is when we have characters, you get a lot of information about the characters. You know, in novels that talk about what people are wearing, you know, their coat and everything, and you get all this background information. In, in Hebrew narrative, you almost never get background information unless it's going to be very important to the story. You almost never get a description of the motivation of characters. You're left to determine the motivation of characters from their actions. The Hebrew authors don't go out of their way to, to talk about the inner life of, of the characters unless it's important. So when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than them, they hated him. And they could not speak a kind word to him. Now, two things about that. Since they're mentioning it, it's important. And also, it's probably not just an inner thought. It's probably not as, well, as it says, they couldn't say it, speak a kind word to him. In other words, this isn't a hatred that's hidden. This isn't a smoldering re resentment waiting its time. This is out and out disdain. So there's already dysfunction coming down from the father between the brothers and Joseph. And then, God steps in and gives Joseph a dream. Joseph had his dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. And again, that hate's going to be evident. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose up and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around me and bowed down. There is nothing subtle about this dream. This is... Hey, guys, guess what? And it, it kind of speaks perhaps a little bit to the immaturity of Joseph that he's, hey, brothers, guess what I dreamed? But there's, there's, a couple, there's something prophetic. We talked about prophets. There's also something prophetic about this dream because in the dream, it's grains of sheep, it's sheaves of grain. So not only is it saying that his brothers are bowing down to him, but it's placing it in the context of provision of food. And when we get later into Joseph's story, this is going to come true in a, in a very literal way. So he told this to his brothers, and they hated him more. Big surprise. 
they said, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Now we're going to get to it in a little bit, but there's a correct and an incorrect interpretation by his brothers there. One, there's resentment, and they talk, are you going to rule over us? Joseph will be elevated to a position of power over them, but he's not going to rule over them. He is going to be second in command to Pharaoh, but the rulership of that family is not going to come through Joseph. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told this to his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Again, he gets another one of these dreams. And there's something, if you're just reading the narrative, that might pass by. But it would, it would mean something different to, to an audience in, at, at this time, and even you know up until the Roman Empire, it would mean very, something very different. When his father says, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? Now, we didn't cover it. Uh, in, it's one of the chapters we moved past to get to this one. But one of the things that happened before this was Joseph's mother, Rachel, died. So when you can read this, at first it sounds like the dad going, hey, you know, are, are the rest of the family bowing down to you? But it's not just speaking about the family that exists there. When he talks about, will I and your mother, and the mother is deceased, he's talking about the whole lineage of that family. He's saying, hey, are, are all the descendants from this going to be bowing down to you? And his father kept that in mind. So there's something about this that sticks in his father's mind. And again, it's prophetic because while Joseph will be used to deliver them and will temporarily be in a position over them as, as the steward of Pharaoh, he, he's not gonna, it's not through him that the rulership of that family line is going to come. And that's just that's a little thing in, in a verse, but it's actually it's, it's a little bit of prophetic insight to what's coming. Now, the story of Joseph being sold by his brothers. Now, the brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing their flocks near Shechem. Come, I am going to send you to them. Now, the brothers had moved when he got there, and there may be a reason for that. In another one of the stories we skipped over to get here, um, there was a little bit of trouble between the, the family of Jacob and the people of Shechem. Uh, that, that comes over one of the, Jacob's daughter uh, is actually assaulted by the prince, the heir to the, the city of Shechem, who then tries to marry her, and her brothers take revenge. They trick the people of Shechem into thinking they're going to give their daughter in marriage and there's going to be an alliance. And they ask the people of Shechem to become circumcised, kind of inviting them into the covenant, and then, after they agree to be circumcised, while they're all still recovering from that procedure, uh, her brothers go into the city and kill, kill all the men. So Shechem's not, Shechem has bad associations 
So it's not, it's not insignificant that the brothers did not stay in the neighborhood of Shechem, but moved their, moved their flocks on. And it's also going to play into the story in a little bit. So his father sent him out, because this is his, his favorite son, and apparently he's been doing this regularly, since this is the son that brought the bad report about the four other brothers. And he goes, Go tell me you know, what's going on with the flocks. I, I, I know you'll tell me. Make the other brothers a little jealous. The other thing is, this is not a normal family. So for the favor of Joseph to be shown like this, the family of Abraham, the line up to this point, has been a line in which the younger brothers have been taking the blessing from the older brothers. So if you're in this family, and Joseph's your younger brother, boy, you remember uh, Jacob cheating Esau, and you remember Isaac being favored over Ishmael. So if you're an older brother, this is this is gonna gotta make you worry a little bit. So you again have this where the family history is causing a dynamic here that, that might not be there. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and said, What are you looking for? I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they're grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. Now it's significant that the brothers moved the flocks without telling their father whose flocks they were. They're, that's a little bit of rebellion. Now, there's been a history of rebellion. Their oldest brother, Reuben, has actually already been disowned from uh, being the, the firstborn of the family, from receiving the firstborn's blessing because of something he did, uh, rebelling against his father. He actually went in, moved in with one of his father's wives, which in that time would have been an act of usurping power. And here their brothers are again kind of demonstrating their rebelliousness and their independence by moving the flocks without telling their father where they've gone. But Joseph finds them, and they seize that opportunity because they're like, we're in a kind of deserted place. We're not near this big city of Shechem, you know. What happens at Dothan stays at Dothan, you know. They're out in the desert, and they plot to kill kill their brother. Reuben, who, as I've already said, has been displaced from being the, the firstborn and receiving that blessing, nevertheless, he is the oldest brother. So he has kind of a responsibility for all of them, and he he convinces them not to kill his brother. He's, he's trying to protect them, and in fact, we'll see, he came back later. He was actually going to rescue Joseph, but when he comes back, they've already sold him. So they, they take him and they, because Reuben convinced him not to kill him, they throw him in the cistern, and at that point, I guess they were going to abandon him, and, you know, well, we didn't kill him, you know, he just died because he was in a cistern, but his blood's not on our hands, which is kind of sneaky, but we know Reuben was planning on coming back and rescuing him. But anyway, caravan of Ishmaelites comes by. Again, this is significant. These are their cousins. These are their second cousins, actually. So this is, again family drama. This is, again, you're, you're seeing the impact of, of bad family decisions here, because Ishmael was the son of Abraham when he tried to use his own means for fulfilling God's promise. So you've got these agents coming into the story that are going to take Jacob in slavery to Egypt, and, and it's, it's their own cousins. 
So they do take him to Egypt. And this is the point where Reuben comes back, and he went to the cistern, and he's like, ah, where is him? And that's when you realize that Reuben was really going to try and intervene and save Joseph. And now he's distraught because he doesn't know what he's going to say to his father. Because, you know, it's like, what do we do? What do we say? He never showed up here. I don't know where he was, you know. But they make the plan of taking that garment that Joseph had, that Jacob had intended to bless his son Joseph and using it to deceive Jacob. The funny thing here is, this is exactly how Jacob deceived his own father. He took his brother's clothes and put them on so that he'd smell like his brother. So this is a little bit of, of to use non-biblical language, karma. There's, there's irony, and it would have been recognized as that. that that's the family, you know, taking the clothes, and, and he goes into mourning, and he says he will mourn till he joins his son in the grave. Well, that's story one. We get to story two, which is Judah and Tamar, which is really, really off-putting. I, as I said last time, when, you know, back in the day, there used to kind of be this tendency to break the, the Bible up into good guys and bad guys. We'd have good characters and bad And there aren't any. There are just flawed human beings, and, and God works through them. Judah is, he is going to be the line that the blessing passes through. Um, I talked about Reuben had rebelled against his father and lost the right of being the firstborn because he moved in with one of his father's wives in the rebellious act. Well, the next two brothers in line, Simeon and Levi, they were the guys that murdered everybody in Shechem while they were recovering from being circumcised. So they aren't going to be the line that the blessing passes through. So that, that right of being firstborn has now, that blessing is going to pass down to Judah. And in his story, there's a bunch of stuff that shows that Judah's not really taking that seriously. He leaves his family. He leaves his brothers. Having seen who they, what they're like, I don't blame him. But he's not staying with the family. And he's going and he's moving out. And this is significant. He marries the daughter of a Canaanite. Well, when Abraham's son Isaac was getting a marriage... Age. Abraham was really worried that he would marry a Canaanite woman, so he sent him back to his own people to get a wife. When Isaac's sons were becoming mature, Esau married a Canaanite woman, and it really, really displeased Isaac, whereas Jacob went again back to his own people and got a wife. Well, here Judah, so there's been this concern to like not mix with the Canaanites. They're the people that are going to lose this land. We don't want to mix with them. But Judah goes and takes a Canaanite wife. So he's already brought something into the, into the family that, that they were trying very hard to keep out. He has three sons. Three sons. There's a lot of three sons in the Bible. Noah has three sons. But none of these three sons are going to be the line through whom the blessing flows. The first one was displeasing to God, and he died. The Lord put him to death. It's kind of gruesome. We don't know what he did, but whatever it was, it was displeasing, and the Lord put him to death. He's not going to be deceived. He's not going to be the line through which the blessing comes. Then we get to Onan, who's even worse. Now, 
there's going to be, this is before the law is given, but there's going to be this notion in the law that each family has an eternal, each family in Israel has an eternal inheritance. And if a brother dies without an heir, it's the duty of his brother to marry his wife and have a child that will be his heir so that that family's line continues on. And that law hasn't been given yet, but evidently that custom is still here because Judah gives his son Onan, gives Tamar to his son Onan so that he can have a brother so the heir's line will not die out. Onan knows that if he has a child with her, it won't be his child, it'll be his brother's heir, and he doesn't want to do it, so very graphically it talks that he pulled out and spilled his semen on the ground so he wouldn't do it. So he is taking this sacred duty of providing for his brother, of turning the line, and he is just using it as an opportunity for his own enjoyment. In that, and he's he's Jacob's grandson, and in that he's kind of following in Jacob's footsteps, because remember last time we talked about the fact that Jacob, for most of his life, primarily related to people in a utilitarian way, how he could use them. And you see that same kind of thing continuing through the family. Well, that's wicked behavior, so the Lord kills him. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up, for he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. So here we're given a little bit of his motivation. He doesn't want to lose his last child. He's not thinking about the promises given to his family. There's already been a promise that blessing is going to come through this line. But he's not trusting that. He's like, oh, oh I can't do this because... I might lose my last son. Contrast this with Abraham, who was getting ready to sacrifice Isaac because he reasoned that God could bring him back from the dead. And here you have Judah going, uh-oh, my family might be wiped out. Not only is he being selfish and looking to preserve his own line, but he's also being selfish to Tamar because now she's a widow. In that culture, it's very unlikely that if that family didn't take care of her, she would marry again. So he's not only deprived, he's not only being selfish in that he's protecting his own line, but he's disregarding the rights and the needs of Tamar and her future provision, because there's not, there's not social security at this time. Your security is your kids. So he is willing to let her just be off with no provision as long as it preserves his line. Then his wife dies. When Judah had recovered from his grief, at least his wife died before he went to the prostitute. That's, that's wonderful. So you get this story about he's going up to shear his sheep, and along the way, he meets Tamar, who's disguised herself as a prostitute. Goes in, has relations with her, and she gets pregnant. And we've, we've read the rest of the verses. We see that when she's found to be pregnant, he wants to have her burned. This is a harsh culture, but that was the punishment for infidelity, especially in the case of a widow. And she produces the tokens that he left with her and shows he is the father. And then he says, let her go because she's more righteous than I. 
he's not making a comment about her character there. He's not saying she's a better person. He is saying she has better fulfilled the will and purposes of God than I have because I was trying to thwart God's will. And she fulfilled it. The last part of this story we get to is the two twins struggling. Twins, you get three sons a lot, you get twins a lot. And you also get this notion of, of the eldest not, not being the chosen one, because even though he's going to get his hand out first, it's his brother, Perez, the younger, that, that actually gets out first. That's going to be the line that brings us to Jesus. So... This is pretty much going to be most of what gets mentioned about Judah. After this, for the rest of Genesis, we're going to be talking about Joseph. We're going to be talking about God's provision for the family. So, if you're just reading through Genesis, you're just there's this kind of, huh, that's weird. It's kind of weird chapter about Judah. If you don't know where the story's heading, but because we know where the story's heading, we realize that in both these chapters, we're seeing that through the hideous, really bad judgment and moral failures of, of one family, God is still moving to preserve his people. God's purposes aren't thwarted by our mistakes. God moves through that. You know, we have that wonderful promise in Romans that all things work together for good for those that are, love God and are called according to his purpose. And we get Paul telling us, you know, you know, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then you get that wonderful thing, you know, if, if, if when we were dead in our sins, God gave us Christ, how much more will he give us all good things now? If this is what God can do through a family that is making every mistake it is possible to make, just think about what he can do through the kingdom when we're yielded, when we're trying to follow But I get great comfort from these stories because they remind me of the faithfulness of God because day to day, I am probably, hopefully I haven't murdered any family members, none that I'm aware of. Um, may have gotten really mad at my sister sometimes, but not quite the same thing. But day to day, I can really, really mess up. That doesn't keep the plans of God from working through us. I used to, there used to be this notion that, which would blow my mind, because if you think about it from a Christian born-again standpoint, there's no way it could be true, but there, there used to be this unspoken criticism that you could, you could make that one, that one choice that invalidated your life for God, that if you, if you, you know, there was a certain point, and if you, if you reached that, that was it. God was no longer going to work through you. God can work through all our failures. Everything we bring to him, he can transform. That's why I love, you know, worship the Lord with your whole heart. When I was first saved, I, I thought that that meant, you know, you, you try and make your whole heart pure and push all the garbage out of it and everything. But as I've since learned, and I've probably said here more than once, no, it means you bring your whole heart to God. You bring your whole life. You bring your failures to God. Because he can transform them. He can transform our failures just like he can trans use our virtues. And, and point of fact, sometimes our virtues aren't as virtuous as we think they are. But that all works together with God and he achieves his purpose through us.
through our mistakes and through our successes. So I would just go out, I would just encourage you to go out into the world, live your lives as ambassadors of the kingdom, and know that the, the king is going to achieve his plans through you. God bless you.